Everyone's found Romans 2, 12? Okay? No? <laughs> Callie, you're going to ask again. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Can't change a zebra stripe, eh? Well, why don't we uh, stand and read Romans 2, verses 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do, have, sorry, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, probably one of the most uh, difficult books in the Bible to understand is Romans. And there's been all sorts of theological gymnastics done in, these, in uh, the entire book. Uh, just by the things that Paul says. And these verses are somewhat straightforward, but they're, they're not exactly the easiest either at first read. So I pray, I pray God, that you would uh, give all of us in their church, including myself, uh, the ability to understand these truths and to have your spirit guide us through this. Uh, we look forward to our time together, and uh, we know our discussion will be rich as always after. So. Let's uh, just enjoy our time and have fun uh, praising you and thinking about you and, and the words you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you haven't already figured out by the overhead projector and the... Uh, not overhead projector, what's that called again? Just projector, maybe. Old school. <laughs> Too cool. Uh, yeah. For those of you listening on, you run a film strip? yeah, a film strip, yeah, the schools. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's leading you in this kind of conversation. <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you about the uh, difference between the conscience and the Holy Spirit, and we had a brief discussion about this at men's group about a month ago. But I thought it'd be a good sermon to do. Um, it's an important distinction to make because the Bible makes it clear that everyone has a conscience. Uh, we're all born with one and we all pass away with one. But none of, not all of us have the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is only given to those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So while it's clear that the conscience and the Holy Spirit are very different, sometimes it's difficult to explain as Christians the differences between the two. And so my goal for you today is to tackle the, the, uh, the conscience and help you understand what it is and how it works in someone's life. And I may speak on the Holy Spirit next week, I'm not sure yet, but if I don't, I know Jeff will be handling uh, a lot of what the Holy Spirit and how he operates in a couple of weeks from now. So we'll see. And even if I do talk about the Spirit next week, it won't be as detailed as what he's going to be dealing with. But let me just say uh, this to start off with, that there are two strong witnesses given to every human being that God uses to say to basically prove that He exists. There are two strong witnesses that God does this with. And 
witnesses that on the day of judgment, people would be without excuse. The first one is creation. The second is conscience. So let's, let's look at the creation one first, and we'll go through this fairly quickly. But just turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It's just a, it's so close. It says this here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world has invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying here is that there's evidence within every human being that God exists, and that evidence is clearly seen by looking at everything in creation. So the issue isn't whether or not there's evidence for the existence of God, it's what people choose to do with that evidence and that knowledge. And here Paul says that people through creation can have an understanding that there is a God, but they choose to suppress the truth. So when you suppress something, you, you hold it down, or you press, you press or restrain it. And this is what people do with the truth. But what, they, what people should be doing is looking at the complexity of nature, the incredible precision of it, the details of the world, and conclude that there must be a designer behind creation. This all can't be fluke and by chance. For example, you know, we, we know that if gravity was just off by just a fraction of what it was, that we, we would all die. Or the fact that there's just the right amount of oxygen in the air and no other planet that we know of has anything close to our oxygen content. The fact that we have the exact distance from the sun to sustain life. Or that the earth produces food so that we can survive. That we can, we can survive in that way. I mean, farmers, for example, will plant tiny seeds uh, less than the size of a fingernail, and a few months later, with the right, uh, with the right uh, rain and, and heat and all this, all of a sudden you have this plant or, or some kind of product grow out of the ground that can sustain the body and keep it alive. I mean, these things, are, they're just too orderly for this not to have a designer behind it. Even the beauty and splendor of nature screams there's a designer when you look at the oceans, the mountains, and the stars. And we look at Psalm 19.1, this is what David says about creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Now they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So basically the, the creation is screaming out, there's a creator, <laughs> there's a creator. We just have to see that when we look at nature. But it's not just in the, the, the nature that we see things, I think we also see it in the cre creation of a human being. So when he says that God's, we can see God in creation, he doesn't just mean heavens and, and mountains and things like that. We are our creation as well. And so when you, when you look at human beings and who they are and how they interact, we would see God in that. I mean, for example, when you look at the complexity of the eye, complexity of the eye, this can't be by chance. Uh, we have taste buds to enjoy food. Why is that? Uh, it can't be just by chance. Or for most amazing to me, and you guys can attest to this, and many of you can anyway, watching the development of a child. When you think a little sperm and an egg produces a human being, you see this, thing, this baby being born, it's incredible. I remember cutting the umbilical cord at, uh, for the, all the boys, and I was thinking, this is crazy. This was the life-sustaining life-like, you know, line for the child inside Janice. 
And when I cut it, I thought, if I was to put that baby back in her, like, just like one hour later, this baby would die. Like, it's that precise, that that cord cut now means the end of life for that child if she was to go back into the, into the womb. I mean, this is just incredible when you think about it. So we're to look at creation and see the fingerprint of God and understand that there must be a God and this exists. So again, it's not that we don't have the evidence, it's just that we choose to suppress the truth that we have in front of us. And I want to tell you a story about me at Drumheller. Uh, I've told uh, a version, like I've had a couple stories there, I've told a couple in the, in the past, but here's a new one that you may not have heard. When I was there at the, at the Ty, uh, Tyrell Museum, where the dinosaur exhibits are, I had a conversation with one of the workers there, and uh, because the whole museum is just covered in, in signs and placards that talk about the Big Bang, and it goes on and on and on about the Big Bang, and everywhere you go it's about that being the creation of life. So this university student who was a bio major was there, he had his shirt on, and I went and talked to him about some of the things I had uh, issues with. But I brought this up with him. I said, uh, I said it's interesting, I said, um, in, in science today, it is, they've made multiple attempts to and never succeeded in producing life from non-life. Never have we ever created life from non-life, ever in the existence of the world, and, and yet, you're claiming here that basically non-life produced life. And I said, and he agreed that that's never been done and that that's something that science has failed to prove yet. But then he said this to me, well just because it's never happened doesn't mean that it couldn't happen in the future. And I said to him, but there's a problem we hear. I said, everything that you have, uh, have um, stated in this building is, a, is of 100% certainty and fact. Because everything says we came into existence through this process and through this process and through this process. And this is how life came into existence. <coughs> so I said, you, science is based on being able to reproduce and test hypotheses and, and, then, and, reprodu and then retest them and have them come true over and over and over again. So I said, your whole museum is based off of a hypothetical test that might come true in the future. So I said, uh, I see like a dichotomy here, and he ended up, you know, just listening, but understood what I was getting at. See, again, it has nothing to do with the evidence of truth. It's suppressing the truth, and God will use that as a form of judgment on the last day. But our second witness is the conscience. And we're going to get into this in a second, but I want to give you the context before we get into verse 12 of what's happening here. You see, in the beginning of Romans, uh, Paul spends a lot of time in his letter explaining how a person gets right with God. How does salvation occur? And while his letter is written to both Jews and Gentiles, his, theolo his theology really challenges the Jews head-on, especially in regards to their understanding of the law handed down to them. See, the Jews believed that because they were God's chosen people and they were privileged to have His law, that this automatically made them good with Him. And they'd be exempt from the final judgment. And at the same time, they believed because the Gentiles didn't have the law, they couldn't be made right with God. So Paul's response to this is, this is simply untrue and this is, this is not right thinking. And so he says this in verse 12. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So Paul's clear here that whether a person has the Mosaic law or not, it's irrelevant to one standing before God. 
because in this context, those who are without the law are the Gentile people, and those with the law are Jewish people. And he says, both of you, whether you sinned, or both of you without the law or with the law, it makes no difference. You're all in the same boat. The end result is you'll both perish, it says there, and both be judged. Now, perishing in the Bible, as many as you know, is not a ceasing to exist. It's not like you, you, you at the, in the end of your life, you come to a, a ceasing in terms of the spiritual life. Um, your body might die, but the, the spirit goes on. So really, perishing in the Bible is just life without God for eternity. That's what perishing means. But it gives the reason here. It's because of sin. The only reason, or the only way I should say, for someone to be justified through the law was to be a doer of the law. So you basically have to be a Roger or a Bethany, and then you'll be justified. Haha. <laughs> uh -huh. So, anyway. <laughs> well, so, yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing. If you, put, if you think from a Jew's perspective, this is a real punch in the gut to them. Because... They, both Paul and the Jews listening, knew that this was an impossibility. No one could ever be a doer of the law enough to be justified. The, the presence of the sacrificial system made that obvious, that you, you were coming to always to deal with your sin. And, Romans, and later on in the book of Romans, Paul makes this declaration in 3.20 that no one can be justified by the works of the law. And of course, this was an issue during the Jerusalem Council. Do you remember the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15? What's going on? There's new Christians have come, uh, come to receive Jesus Christ in Antioch in the Gentile world. And Jewish missionaries are coming in and saying, you need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to be a Christian. So it's faith in Christ plus the works of the law. And they have this major debate. And this is the end result. Listen to what Peter says about doing, doing the law. He says, God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So Peter says, no one in the history of the world, in the Jewish faith, has ever been able to obey the law fully. But let's say a Jew says, yeah, but I've been really close to, I've been really close, I've got 90% of it done, or 65%, isn't that good enough? Well, James 2.10 says this. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So if you break only one aspect of the law and maintain everything else, that's enough for God to bring out judgment on you. Because Jesus died for sin. He didn't say a percentage of sins. He died for all sin. So if you just sin in one aspect of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing because you needed a Savior to redeem you from the law. So again, the percentage, there was no spiritual report cards that God handed out in Israel. You couldn't get a pass grade. It was either 100% or nothing. And that's why Jesus had to come and fulfill the law. He actually lived in this world and 100% obeyed it. And therefore, that's why he couldn't die. Sin couldn't hold him in the grave. So when Paul says you must be a, a doer of the law to be justified, there's a real punch in the gut to the Jew. Especially because they all knew, we can't do this. We can't do this. But not only was it a punch in the gut to them because of that, he actually adds more insult to injury by speaking about the Gentiles, in that even though they didn't have the external law like the Jews had, they were instinctively able to live in accordance with it. So look at, at, at times, not all the time, but at times. Look at verse 14. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. Just substitute the word here, uh, Gentile, for non-Christian to make it suitable for our context. How many times have you heard someone say this, or have you said yourself, well, I know Christians who live better lives than non-Christians? Anybody hear that before? I know lots of non-Christian people. They're, they're, they live better lives than Christians for the most part. I've heard that. Well, this is exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, or non-Christians who don't have the, God's commands, do instinctively the things of the law, then they not having the law are laws themselves. Alright? Now, why is that? Why is it possible for a, for a non-Christian to live morally good, upright lives? How is it possible at least in some areas anyway, for them to be fairly consistent in those things. Well, Paul gives us three reasons in verse 15. He says that, here they are. He says, in that they, one, show the work of the law written on their heart, two, that their conscience bears witness, and three, their thoughts alternately accuse or defend them. Now I want to say this is a change in my theology this week and my understanding of these verses. I used to think that the work, the law written in their hearts and the conscience and the thought processes are all one thing. This is all speaking about the conscience. But I recognize now that these are actually three distinct things. Three distinct things that I want to share with you, each one and how these operate together. Because they're important. First, let's deal with the law written on the heart. You know, I had this thought process in my head as I was preparing this week. This, this illustration came. Have you ever seen like factories when they produce products and there's a conveyor belt and it's like one, one uh, object comes along and it stops and then this, this big machine comes down and stamps it. So it's like it goes along the conveyor belt, stamp, move, stamp, 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 and, it gets, and it's giving the signature of, of the product of that company. Well, I think it's about the same thing as with the law written on the heart of every human being. When God creates a human being, He stamps everybody. <laughs> every, time they, every time a child is born, He stamps them with, this, with the law, the external law, basically, placed on the inside of a, of a person. And not the ceremonial law, like not like keeping the Sabbath and stuff, but the moral law, the ethics and, and, and the codes that God would want us to live by. So He stamps every human being at birth with this written law on their heart. And really, it's an internal moral code or an internal guiding system of what is morally right and wrong. So it's really like a stamped code of ethics. And this is true regardless of culture and gender. I don't care where you go in the world, every single person has this stamp of God's morality placed on them. If I were to summarize what I think this written law is, I'd say it's, the, it's a law code of love. Or it's a, a law of love. That's what the written law is on our hearts. It's a love code. And the reason I use these, this phrase is because this is exactly how Jesus summarizes the entire law. By, by summarizing it by love. Do you remember the passage in Matthew 22? This is what Jesus says. Uh, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. 
you think about that now. Why didn't he say, well, you know, like don't steal or don't lie or something like that? He didn't say those are the greatest commandments. He basically summarized it in everything in one shot. He says you have to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourselves. And if you look at the Ten Commandments alone, the first four are how to love your God, and the last six are how to love your neighbor, if you look at them in that way. And if you think about how thick Leviticus is in terms of its verses and pages, and how extensive Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are, for Jesus to say, you can sum up my entire law by love, is an incredible statement. Because he recognizes that all of us have an internal love code. We're all hired, hardwired to know what is right and what is wrong and when that code has been met or violated. Here's an example in gossip. Let's take gossip. Here's how we instinctively have a love code on our, uh, stamped on us by God to know that gossip is instinctively wrong. You, you and I, if we want to gossip with someone, we'll never invite the other person into the room and then start talking about them. We, we, we all know gossip is only gossip because the person is not there to hear. How about stealing? You and I don't make an announcement on a megaphone and text the business or the person we're going to steal from and say, by the way, we're going to do this tonight at such and such a time, right? We do it in stealth. We do it in, in, uh, and we scope out our surroundings and so on. But we, all, but we all know that it's wrong. I don't care what culture you're in. Any act of selfishness across the board, whether you're male, female, or any gender in the world, is considered uh, something that's not good. Any act of inconsideration is not good. Again, can you think of any place in the world where you're in a parking lot and uh, you are stopped waiting for someone to back out? And as they back out, they happen to back towards you so that it prevents you from taking that sprawl. And as that happens, someone comes around the other way and pulls in and takes that spot. Can you think of anybody in the planet that thinks that that person wasn't a jerk for doing that when they saw you waiting there? I don't care if you're Hindu, Muslim, uh, Eskimo, or, or uh, a white guy, you're going to think that that's wrong. Why? Because God has stamped on our hearts that this, that's an inconsiderate, selfish act. Things like pornography. We don't invite mom and dad, our spouse, or our pastor to come around to attend the session. Why? Because we know it's wrong. On the flip side, on the love code, we all know that all selfless acts are praiseworthy and commendable. Right? When someone self-sacrifices himself for the good of another, I don't care what culture you're in, that's seen as a positive thing. If you're generous with your time and resources, every culture believes that to be a good thing. Every culture values justice, honesty, compassion, and when you show kindness to others. This is the law code of love written on every person's heart. And so what Paul's teaching here is it's possible at times for non-Christian people to live moral and responsible lives because they have this internal code written on their hearts. Now I think it's important to say this because some Christians in, in certain circles think that it's impossible for a non-Christian to do good things. Lots of people, I know, that, I know people who've said that. No non-Christian can do anything good or anything moral. The problem is, is that here he's saying that these, have, these Gentiles do instinctively the things of the law. They are doing exactly what God would want in the areas of justice, compassion, and love. They are doing those things. And this is confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. In Luke 6, 
He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Now this is important because the word for love here is the same word, agape, that is used to describe God's love for us. They are loving the same way God loves in this context. So it is possible for people to be moral. The key though, church, I don't want you to hear, or that I do want you to hear, I should say, is that it's no value in terms of alleviating God's eventual judgment on their lives. Just because they're morally good and stuff, it doesn't make any difference to the judgment. Why? Because back to verse 12, they've sinned, they've still sinned without the law. So even though they don't know God's commandments per se, they've still sinned. And so the good doesn't outweigh the bad. There still needs to be justice served in this area. So what happens then when people violate this love code that's written on their hearts? Well, this is where the conscience comes into play. In verse 15, you read here, it says that the conscience bears witness. It bears witness. So in a witness in court, what do they do? When someone comes to court as a witness, they testify as to the evidence that they have personal knowledge of or have observed in their own lives. That's what a witness does. They give a testimony to the things that they know and things that they've seen. Well, that's what the conscience does in a person's life who's a non-Christian. Well, and a Christian as well. But we're talking here primarily in the context of non-Christian. This, there's this law written on a person's heart that knows what the love code is. And so when they violate it or do something in, in, in accordance with it, that's a good, it testifies uh, for them. And it gives evidence in terms of how they've done in relation to the love code written on their hearts. So really, if I was to put one word on the conscience, just give it one word, it'd be, it's an evaluator. It's an evaluator of right, an evaluator of wrong. It pats you on the back when you do well, and it basically tells you, produces guilt when you've done poorly. So if God's law written on our hearts is really the stamp on us, then I'd say the conscience is God's alarm system. It's his alarm system which goes off when we violate what we know is right and produces guilt in us. You know, there's an interesting test that they do with a tribe in Africa uh, that, I, that I heard about of a way of determining one's guilt for stealing. I was tempted to try it here today, but I didn't know if any of you were guilty of that. <laughs> Maybe if I started from the age of eight and under, I'd probably have a better chance of uh, getting you. But anyway, so what they do in this tribe is they would, they, they had a way of testing uh, if you were guilty. And here's what they would do. They'd have you stick out your tongue and they would take a hot knife and they'd put it on your tongue. And they would know you were guilty or not by what, how fast the knife came off the tongue. They believed that if you were not guilty, there would be enough saliva on the tongue, enough moisture, that they could put the, the knife on your tongue and take it off quickly. However, if you were lying, your mouth would be all dried up. And so, therefore, if it would stick, then it would stick on your tongue and you wouldn't pull it off and rip all the skin off. Okay? True story. Now listen, why, this, is the, this is what the, these, these guys are Gentiles who do not have the law written on their hearts. Right? Or sorry, they do have the law written on their hearts internally, but not externally. Like they don't have the Jewish commandments. They don't have our Bible. But what are they saying by that test? We know that your conscience will get you if you're lying. 
because your body will produce a physical dryness in the mouth from that and therefore we know if you're guilty or not that's the test they used so they believed that the conscience would produce that, that, that guilt and would re your body would react to it accordingly this is why again um, when we cheat on tests our heart will beat faster in that exam knowing that our conscience is alarming us producing guilt why do children lie? why do they lie? because they know they did something right? because they know they did something wrong where did they get that from? their conscience plus your training but the, even if you didn't train them their conscience would know that it's wrong children know that they don't even know the scriptures but they know that lying to mom and dad is not right but they do it anyway and it produces guilt in them what about those who seem to have no conscience what, what people, I've heard that, that person's got no conscience, they have no conscience, they don't care, this and that and the other well here's why, the scripture tells us the answer to this question it's because they've seared it over time it's been seared. Think of a steak when you put it in the frying pan. You sear it at a high heat to get the juices to stay in. And so you really, you're burning it at a high temperature. You can actually burn your conscience. How do you do that? By repeated violations or ignoring of the conscience over and over and over again. Look at 1 Timothy 4.2. It says, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hip hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So the reason why they have abandoned the faith uh, or, the, or one of these teachers are, are, these teachers have known truth but they've just seared the conscience, seared the conscience, seared the conscience, repeated violations, ignoring it and have just believed this, to, this lie to be true now. You know what? I, I, I uh, learned a lot about this watching the Netflix series on the Vietnam War. It's a really good documentary on the Vietnam War. It's probably about 20 hours long and there's about 10 videos or around two hours each. And uh, it, it, it's, they interview these soldiers that survived the Vietnam War. And uh, they asked them, like, how did you basically go from like, city life to like, killing people? And they said, yeah, it was, it was messed up. Like, we, we, we were the same guys that were helping, like, women across, old ladies across the street, like, in our hometowns. And next thing you know, we're basically, like, doing these atro atrocious acts. And we're having to, like, kill people in ways that we never thought possible. And they all basically said the same thing. You just got used to it. That was the kind of gist of it. Like, you just kind of, like, you just had to do it. You just kind of got used to it. And after a while, it just became normality. See what's happening? They have to, to, to survive that, that, that area and to get through that time. Their conscience are being seared and seared and seared and seared so they can actually take these actions out. So this happened, this of course then can happen, this searing can happen on an individual level, like individual soldiers, but it can happen on a corporate level as well. A great example is the Nazi party. How in the world can you justify your actions against the Jewish people as a corporate entity unless you seared your conscience? So the third piece of this whole process here, so we have the law written in the heart, we have the conscious bearing witness. What happens next is then after the conscience has been violated, 
Now our thoughts alternatively accuse or, de or defend us. So this is what happens next. It's, yeah, I'll read the exact wording here. It says, yeah, it says our thoughts alternatively our thoughts alternatively accusing or also defending them. So here's where the mind games really play, right? And this is where the evidence of inward, uh, inward moral conflict occurs. After the alarm goes off in your head that something's been violated, now all of a sudden you have to try to play mind games to try to justify or defend what just happened. You try to make sense of it. You either try to like uh, minimize things to make it like to, to justify yourself or excuse it, or or you um, basically will defend yourself in certain ways. So we come up with different methods, right? I mean, in dealing with guilt, we respond differently. Some of us condemn. Some of us go into depression. Some justify. Some excuse themselves and sh blame shift to other people. Others use like self-medicate through drugs or alcohol or whatever. But these are the ways we do it. We have this mental battle to try to deal with the violations that we committed. And we have all these ways of processing these things. For me, when I was a non-Christian, my way was just time. If enough time went by, the guilt would slowly diminish. And I would start to feel better because time and removal from the person or whatever just produced this sort of like minimizing of pain or guilt. But the issue that Paul's addressing in Romans chapter 2 is this. You might start to feel better, but it doesn't do anything in terms of dealing with sin in your life. It changes nothing in there. And of course, this is the problem and what Paul is dealing with here. And he's saying that judgment is going to fall on every individual who has, dealt, who has undealt with sin in their life. We pick this up really in verse 16. He says, uh, starting a little bit earlier, he says, Their conscience bears witness, and their thoughts alternately accuse them or defend them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. On the last day of judgment, it will be Jesus Christ standing on the throne of judgment and holding people to account. And one of the things he will expose in that day are the secrets of men and women. Things that we have thought about or done in private that no one in the planet knows about. But they really, these are secrets that truly shape our underlying motives for who we are and, why, and the th things that we do. Things we've been able to hide from everyone else, but not God. And every single one of us has them. I know that for a fact. Every single one of you has secret, a secret or two that your spouse doesn't know. That none of your friends know that nobody in this planet will know and you will never tell them. All of us have them. And, and this is the thing. Paul says this. On the day when this, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. It will be all opened up on the day of judgment. But here's the thing. God has provided a way out. He's provided a way out. The same person who's the judge is also the same person for rescue. And that's why he's going to judge according to the gospel. And, and Paul starts to move into Romans chapter 3 and 4 and saying, listen, there's a means out of this. You're, there's a means out and the means is not a, a, a methodology. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He's come to take care of this and he will do it for you. Again, we know the gospel message. 
how do we receive this forgiveness for sin in this lifetime so that we don't have to stand before the judgment before God so that our secrets don't have to be revealed at that moment because they're all dealt with here and now it's the ABCDs again of the gospel we acknowledge our sin we acknowledge our sin before God we believe that Jesus Christ did something about it by dying on the cross as a substitute for us we confess our sin and we tell him the things we've done wrong and we dedicate our lives to him in thankfulness for what he did for us. To finish the sermon, I'm not going to give lessons. I'm just going to give, con- I want to talk about concepts from the sermon that I feel are, that I don't want you to miss. And to be honest, concepts, lessons are probably interchangeable. You can, you can deal with them how you want. But these are, these are some four concepts I, I think are really important to understanding this. First one is this, is that God leaves himself with two witnesses as proof of his existence. He leaves two witnesses. The first one is creation, and the second one is a conscience. Now, because of this, I think it's important for you and I to come up with our own um, sort of like, not, like not version, but a kind of version, like the things that make you tick in terms of like your knowledge and stuff and your excitement for evangelism, but learn ways in which you can help Speak about uh, uh, proving God's existence through creation. Come up with understandings that way so that when you have evangelistic conversations, you can defend the fact that these people already believe, know that there's a God, but they're suppressing truth. Come up with like, ways of defending creation as a means of helping you in evangelism. These are important witnesses. Learn how to speak through them. I mean, Rabbi Zacharias and his apologetics team, they, they, they have these things all sort of re- rehearsed and studied. Study them for yourselves. Come up with a way of being able to say to someone, I know you're, you're a, an evolutionary biologist, but let me tell you how I believe that you actually believe there's a God, but you're just suppressing the truth. And have these conversations. I'll deal with the conscious part at the end about how to deal with that as a witness. Second thing, non-Christians can genuinely love and live moral lives. Super important to understand this. I think to me this is the biggest key to the sermon in a lot of ways because people think, well, they can't love, they can't live moral. Well, according to Romans chapter 2 and Luke 6, they can. And the reason is, is because they have a law written on their hearts. It's an internal understanding of love. But here's the limitation to this. It still makes no difference on the day of judgment. How good we are makes no difference to God. Look at verse 12. He says, all have sinned even though we're, we can be morally good, we still have sin. Verse 13, you have to be a 100% doer of the law. Nobody is. Now, verse 15, um, he says that your thoughts, your, consci- uh, your thoughts actually will accuse you at times. Okay, why would that be? Because of sin. And then verse 16, he says, we all have secrets. So again, there still makes no difference to God on Judgment Day. It's super important because of our, the number one thing I encounter in Okotoks, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And I can say this, I, like my old theology used to say this, well, no one's really good. No one's good. No one's good. Right? That's the way I used to approach it. Now I'm like, yeah, you are. I can see that in you. You know what? You're kind to me. You're kind to my, your neighbors. Uh, you know, you seem to be like value justice and compassion. But God's not concerned about that. 
He sees that. What is he going to do with the stuff that, is, that you have done that is sinful? That's the part he's gonna, he has to deal with, not the good stuff. Which is the key number three in terms of concept then. The, is that you have to understand and appeal to the love code written with, within all of us. If you understand and appeal to the love code written with all of us, this helps someone see that they're morally not as good as they need to be. Let's just take the, the forget, forget for now, love God with your whole heart and soul and mind. Let's just take love your neighbor as yourself. If you speak to somebody in this way, I think it'll go a lot better than saying, are you a sinner? Have you ever sinned? And are you a murderer, you're a thief, and all these things? I don't think that's the right way, the, right, the way of the master approach. I don't think that's wise. If you can it this way, though, it's a natural way into a conversation. If you said to someone, you know, I think all of us in this world are, are guilty in terms of being unloving. And I think you'd agree that probably you would probably desire that punishment occurs when unloving acts occur. I'll give you an example. Like, is that, have you, has anyone um, screwed you out of a job? Or not giving you praise when you deserved it? Or taking a position from you that, you that was yours? Or gossiped about you? What was your response to that person? They're going to say, well, you know, I stopped being friends with them, or I wouldn't talk to them anymore, or I kind of gossiped about them, or I excluded them from family functions, whatever. I say, so you believe then that people who are unloving should be punished by the fact that you did those things? You'd believe that. And they'd say, well, yeah, I guess so. I say, well, have you ever been perfect in the area of love? Like, if I, if I was to interview all your friends and your family, is there anybody out there that uh, would say that you've treated them absolutely perfectly? And they'd say no. And then, so the ultimate, well, the, the next conclusion then is, well, then you believe that you need punishing too, right? <laughs> because if you feel it's important to exclude them and punish them for what they did to you, you must feel that the same justice should be der der uh, derived towards yourself as well. See, and that's the way in to a, a natural conversation about the law code written on everybody's hearts. Appeal to love. And the fact that they demand it and they, need, they feel the necessity to punish it. Every single one of us would admit guilt in that way. And then that's where the gospel comes in. Jesus Christ is the only one who can take care of that. Your, the internal witness in your heart, your conscience and your thought life tells you that. He's provided a way. Now they may refuse the gospel, and most do, but it doesn't, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is just to produce, or to present truth. <laughs> it's up to God and His Holy Spirit to do the rest. Let's uh, have some time together in discussion, and I'll be curious to hear you weigh in.